touching on this morning, this sort of this dynamic. Uh, I was trying to think of a word to use this morning, it wouldn't come to me, but there's kind of a gulf uh, between understanding the role of trials in our lives and how, uh, how God uses those in the life of a Christian uh, towards our sanctification, towards the purifying or the refining of our faith. Um, but then there's this gulf between the recognition that God, that is what God is doing and then this experience of joy in the midst of that. There's a great gulf between those two things. In other words, I'm saying I'm not sure it's necessarily uh, necessarily going to be, a, a pro- joy would be necessarily a product of understanding that God's using those things. Um, we can understand that and still not find joy in the midst of those. We might find encouragement and hope and all those things, and that's important. So there seems to be a gulf in that as well. And James, I think, anticipating uh, that, that gulf or our attempts to understand this begins in verse 5. And I'll begin in verse 1, but we're picking up in verse 5 and then through verse 12. Well, we read again, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So, too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we'll pick up in verse 13 uh, the next time. So I just want to think about those verses tonight. As I've said, uh, there's a joy I think is only possible if you value more highly uh, your conformity to Christ than to the temporal comfort and ease. Uh, I think that's part of the key to the joy and and bridging this gap between the rejoicing in the midst of trials and then understanding what the trials are doing. In other words, if if I don't value what God is accomplishing through the trials, then I'm I'm going to find it very difficult to be joyful in the trials. In fact, it is the assurance that he is accomplishing the thing, which I know is is my greatest joy and and my highest value is where my joy comes from. So that's the the bridge to that gap, I think, at least that's my understanding of that. So that that James is speaking, I think, to that gulf. In our effort to bridge that gulf, we will inevitably discover uh, a lacking. And what I'm saying there is as we're evaluating the trials, trying to, trying to grasp that God is doing things through the trials, that, that they are refining our faith and that we are enduring through that. And in, through that endurance, we are growing in our maturity to the point to where we're more complete, more perfected or perfected. And therefore, um, 
more Christ-like and our faith is being refined. We understand that and we're trying to navigate that. But then at the same time, because of the pain of the trials, we're struggling to have the joy. So either we don't understand the, the purpose of the trials or we do understand the purpose, but we struggle to find joy in the midst of them, even knowing the purpose. And so there's this gap that we're struggling to understand. And I think that's, a, that's that, that's that inner evaluation, that working, trying to work all that out. And what we wind up, what James seems to anticipate is that we will wind up in that deliberation to come to a realization that there is something lacking in us. We can't seem to balance the two. We can understand the reason and the way God uses the trial, and we can understand the imperative that we ought to have joy in the trial, but it is not being our experience that we both understand the purpose of it and patiently endure it and at the same time rejoice in the midst of it. And so, so James seems to anticipate that, and he says to us, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So James seems to conclude, however we might define what we're lacking in that moment, James seems to conclude that what it is, is wisdom, which I think you might expand to include understanding. Uh, I was thinking about this today as I was uh, sitting on the back deck and enjoying this beautiful weather, but I was thinking one of the, one of the things where we're so lacking is, is when we say, okay, I accept that your providential hand is in charge of the trials that I'm enduring. And I accept and I understand that this is what you are doing through the trials. But what is it specifically about the trial that you're addressing in my own heart and in my own thinking and in my own understanding? In other words, I want to know if the trial is for the purpose of refining faith and causing me to jettison all that is not faith, what specifically about my faith are you targeting? <laughs> Because I want to I respond to that quickly so that this trial would no longer be necessary. Now, I know there's going to be another one because there's probably another place. But if I can understand, Lord, what you're targeting here, I, I want to yield in that area. And, and sometimes I just, it's just beyond me to understand specifically what he's targeting. And so I'm left to endure the trial and trust that he will reveal it to me at some point. But what I'm lacking in that moment is wisdom. I don't, I don't have the understanding. If the God who is providentially guiding the trials has a purpose in that, and I'm not discerning the specific purpose and target of his, of his refining in my own life. It's weird to me because I could look at yours and your trials and I might, I might surmise, well, I know exactly what the Lord's working on in your life. But I don't always see that very clearly in my own life. So, so I need in that moment understanding. The other difficulty, I think, is, is that while we're thinking in those terms, even if we're able to identify, okay, Lord, I, I see now what you're targeting, and I, and I, I want to yield that over to you. Well, we're, we're working on that, but we're not doing that with a sense of joy. So now I'm entertaining another thing. Not only do I see, Lord, where you're working, but I, I want to have joy. I want an experiential joy that you are doing that even while I'm enduring the difficulty of that trial itself. And so I find when I'm searching for the resources to do both of those things, I find that I'm lacking as well. And I'm, I agree with James in that at the bottom of that, I am lacking understanding. 
I don't understand how it is that I have to have an experiential joy, not just a joy by faith. Certainly faith is involved in that joy, but an experiential joy even while the trial is in my life. I can't merge all those two with the resources that, are, that originate in me in any way. So what I'm lacking there is understanding. So James targets that. I wrote this in, in, in light of that. Since the suffering of trials is so contrary to our natural instincts, an imperative to patiently endure them with joy and our efforts to do so will expose, expose whatever is lacking in our lives. And James, as I said, identifies that as wisdom. That's interesting to me because he could have said anything. He could have said a multiple of things. He could have said, you're lacking this, this, and this. But he seems to be boiling down all of that and saying underneath all of that is what you're lacking in this moment is an understanding. And so, so it's not in you. You've already exhausted yourself. You're finding that what's necessary to have an experiential joy and a full understanding and patient endurance of the trial, trusting that God is working these out, whatever's necessary to bridge the gap between those two and that become an experiential reality for you is not in you. That's the whole point of the trial is to press out your self-reliance. And so James witnesses to them and says in the process anticipating they they come to that place he says if any one of you lacks wisdom so that's obviously what he thinks we're lacking if he left us there we would definitely sink into despair and despondency for the thing we lack is not available from within ourselves so I pause there just for impact to say that James is saying essentially you lack wisdom well, if he leaves us there, we really sink into despair because now I don't understand exactly what God's trying to do in my life through the trials. And, I, and I'm certainly not able to find a joy in that because I don't know what he's doing. And if he leaves me there, I'm just sinking in despondency. Now there's a providential God guiding the, guiding the trials in my life, accomplishing purposes that are only known in his own secret counsels and not revealed to me. And yet I have this imperative to rejoice in the midst of that complete, utter un misunderstanding of what's happening there. And I realize that I don't have that. I don't have that. And if James leaves us there, we sink into despondency. How, long ha how often have you seen someone under long trial without understanding and without the spirit of Christ sink into depression and despair and distress and they just get overwhelmed with that? And even if they profess Christ, as I shared this morning, they wind up being bitter and resentful. And then there's this, this fatalistic resignation and, uh, really rooted more in the fact that I can't do anything about it. <clears throat> That's not a triumphant resignation and patient endurance of suffering. That is a resignation to the fact that you can't do anything about it. But thank God James doesn't leave us there. So he identifies the source of this wisdom in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I was thinking about that phrase. That is extraordinarily and beautifully simple, right? The one thing that you have discovered in all of your trials and that you've been exploring and tearing your own heart and mind apart, searching for something to bring some sense to all of this, and you finally come to the end of yourself and you realize now that you do not have the capacity in you to make sense of it, much less feel joy in the midst of it. And there's one option available to you, and it's as simple as ask. 
It doesn't say go through a, it doesn't go, it doesn't say go to a seminary. It doesn't go, it doesn't say, you know, go to the church counselor or it doesn't say go see a psychologist. It, it doesn't say read a bunch of books. It doesn't say read, he doesn't give us all these ways to, to get to that wisdom. He says what you discover that you're lacking in this dynamic of suffering and trials, what you discover you're lacking, the source for it is God. Ask him. I was really convicted by that because I'm, I don't know why it is, perhaps my flesh, surely my flesh, that I, I push off asking to the end rather than beginning. I immediately set to study in my Bible. I'm not, I'm not condemning that. That's useful. God speaks through his word. And I, and I figure out spiritually and religiously, there has to be some reasonable explanation here. And so I'm working my way through and I'm in my own intellect and my own power and determination trying to discover the thing that will gap the trials and my joy, the thing that will bridge that gap. And if God were to allow me to succeed in that, I think I might become prideful. I think I might figure out, I've figured out the secret to suffering and having joy in the midst of it all by myself. And so I think sometimes God prevents that or hinders that for that very reason, at least in me. And so it strikes me to say that when you exhausted yourself and it makes no sense and there's no, nothing that you can originate or derive from within yourself to put it all together in a coherent way, there's an option available to you, Christian, and that is simply ask. Just ask. I love what he says here because he assures us in, in some sense in asking, he's not going to, he's a generous, he's generous and he's not going to reproach you or re, re, reprove you in any way and he's going to deliver the thing you ask for. Just ask. I was thinking this morning, even as I was speaking and I didn't want to let my mind run that way too far, but in the midst of these trials, sometimes we ought to just pause in the midst of them and say, Lord, I don't understand this. Something that came to mind, I'll touch on it later, when Paul's thorned. But in that context, it struck me that I, don't re, I didn't recall Paul asking God what it was for. Uh, in fact, he gives a heading before he talks about his thorn, but he describes it as a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me so that I might not exalt myself. So he seems to understand maybe on the backside what it was for, what the thorn of the trial was for. But he places it ahead of that. But then he goes on to say, I asked the Lord to take it away three times. And he didn't take it away. And it just struck me that if I think he's reflecting back and beginning that passage of Scripture. But it makes, it makes me wonder, did Paul ask when he was suffering with his thorn, Lord, why is this in place? Lord, what are you, what are you targeting with this thorn? Why, why is this thorn given to me? And we know that he ultimately understood that because he states so. But did he, did he say that before he asked the Lord to remove it? It doesn't seem like he would because if he knew that was the purpose for it, he wouldn't be asking the Lord to remove it. So I think initially Paul had this trial and he, and he evaluated the trial to say that, look, I, I could fulfill my calling and my mission much better and much more efficiently if I didn't have this burden to deal with. So, Lord, would you take it away? He had the great, best of motives. He wanted to serve Christ with all that he was and remove all hindrances. So he asked the Lord to take it away. But I don't 
It's not recorded that he asked the Lord before that, Lord, why is this in my life? And I think that's what James is saying to us here. Lord, just ask the Lord for wisdom. He may, you may not end up asking him to take the trial away, but you may ask him, Lord, why is the trial in my life? What is your providential hand doing in my life? What are you targeting in my life by the trial? Lord, grant me wisdom because I don't know how to understand that. I don't, I don't have within me the capacity to understand the mysterious works of God in the inner man. And so he simply says we're to ask God. As I've already shared in verse 5 as well, he says, let him ask of God who gives, here's the, here's the way, he gives all, who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. So not only do we identify the, the, the source of the wisdom, we also identify the, uh, the means of obtaining the wisdom, ask, ask. And then now we're identifying the manner of our asking. How do we go about asking? First of all, we ask with a, with a certain confidence and an assurance. One assurance is that he gives generously. I was sharing with the kids as we've been going through this book as well. But when we ask God for wisdom, he doesn't meter it out to us. It's saying here, you need not, you need not worry that God's going to withhold. He's generous. He's, he's through the trial, he's pressed out of you self-reliance and finally you realize the lack and in realizing the lack and that it is not within you, you're appealing to God. That's exactly what the trial was pushing you towards. Why would he then at that moment say, no, I'm not going to give it to you. You figured out. God is not going to endorse your self-sufficiency by withholding from you the wisdom of God. And so he says, ask of God, but ask, be assured that he is not going to meter it out to you in, in so small of increments that there'll be no benefit for it. He is generously going to pour out his wisdom in your life. So we ask with that assurance. He goes on to say we're going to ask with faith, but I think this is the kind of the precursor to our asking. We approach God, we ask Him with an expectation that He's not going to, not going to be stingy with His wisdom. In fact, I think we lack the wisdom of God more often because we simply do not ask than we do because He is withholding it from us. Often we don't ask for the wisdom of God because we've come to the conclusion that we already have the wisdom necessary for that situation. We reserve the asking for the big ones that we don't make sense of. I honestly believe we need His wisdom in every aspect, even the ones in which we think we have a grasp on the issues altogether. So we ask of God... And we ask understanding that he is a generous God, that he will not withhold his wisdom from us. In that passage as well, I think we ask with assurance of God's character in that he is a gracious God. It doesn't say there that he will reproach you. In fact, I think in the trials and all that he's doing in the trials and he finally presses us to where we now appeal to God for wisdom and understanding in regards to the trial. And, and Lord, how can I be joyful in the midst of this trial? He's not going to, when you appeal to him to ask him for the very thing that he's magnified that you need, he's not going to say, well, you sure were taking long enough. He's not going to say in that moment, I don't know if I give you wisdom or not. You're so, so hard-hearted and stubborn. In fact, you're so prideful and self-sufficient, I'm withholding wisdom from you. He, he's not going to reproach you for asking for the thing that His providence has prompted you to ask for. In fact, I think that's what He's doing in the trial. 
mashing or smashing and crushing self-sufficiency, leading you towards a dependency upon Him and a genuine and authentic appeal for Him for the wisdom that only He can provide. And when I ask for it, He's not going to say, took you long enough. He's generous. He's going to grant the wisdom. He's not going to reproach me for appealing to Him for wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean when he grants it, I might not think to myself, well, I should have done that a long time ago. I might have cut short some of the trials. Those are self-thoughts and self-examination, and that's necessary. But in the asking, God is not going to rebuke you. He's not going to reproach you is what James says. And I love the last phrase. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we ask with assurance of God's character that the thing asked for, God will be faithful to provide. All through the Bible, we're taught that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we know it begins there. In fact, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians where, um, where he comes to them determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of man or in, in His speech but in the power of the Holy Spirit. But later on in the same passage, he says, however, we do speak a wisdom but not from this world, a wisdom from above. And he goes even further to say the wisdom from above the natural man doesn't understand. So you're not going to find the wisdom to put all this together originating in yourself. So you're appealing now to God for a wisdom that is alien to you in your natural, in your flesh or in your natural man. And when we appeal rightly to God for that, God is generous. He's not going to withhold that. He is going to give it graciously. He's not going to reproach you for that. And he's going to grant the thing that you're appealing to him for. In our trials, in your trials, what we're going through right now, that's who we appeal to. There are things going on in my life, sometimes outwardly and sometimes inward battles where I don't understand. Sometimes for me, the trial is my own, is my own self-destruction going on within myself, my own, my own thinking through something to the point of confusion. And that's the trial that's going on. And, and, I, and I'm pressed in those moments to understand that I don't have the resources to understand what you're doing here, Lord. So would you grant your wisdom? And I can, I can testify that in every case, he has given clarity. Sometimes not at that moment, but sometimes the next day, sometimes the next week, sometimes through a circumstance, sometimes through a passage of Scripture. He has granted some grasp of how God is working in that moment. And he's never reproached me for that. I, I can't remember a single time that I've asked God for wisdom and that I've sensed in my spirit or it, that I've picked up from the word that he's rebuking me for asking for wisdom. There's a lot of reproach and a lot of rebuke for relying upon my own wisdom, but never for appealing to God for his wisdom. And he's never been stingy with that as well. He's given his wisdom generously and he's always been faithful to grant that. So that's the, that's the manner in which we're asking. I think that's more a recognition of God's character in the asking. But then he adds to that in verse 6. But the one who asks with these expectations must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So the manner in which we ask is we ask in faith. Now that was interesting to me as well. That he doesn't say here, we ask with faith, but we ask in faith. It suggests to me that there is, a, there is an environment in which we live out of which we ask. It is, not, it is not just asking and believing really, really hard that he's going to grant it. 
It is, a, it is a life of faith. It is a life that is, first and foremost, born again. It is a life that is walking in fellowship and communion with God. It is a life that's not perfect, but yet under sanctification, under the power of the Holy Spirit, being guided by the truth of God's Word. Out of this life of faith, we ask. And that's why, that's why I was thinking about Paul, because Paul, Paul doesn't ask why the thorn's there. He asks ask that it be removed. And that's an interesting dynamic. But to me, the life of faith may not immediately ask for the trial to be removed. He might ask rather, Lord, what is the trial for in my life? James has already told us it's producing this in our lives. And we already recognize that it is under the providential hand of God. So the faithful question, the question of faith might be, God, why is this in my life? What are you doing through these circumstances in my life? So the man that asked, by the way, for wisdom must ask in faith. He must ask in the, in the, in the environment of faithfulness to God. But he must, must ask also believing that God will answer and grant his prayer for wisdom here particularly. And I think that's kind of attached to what he's already said. But the idea of faith, I think, has that greater picture as well. It's not just a mere asking and believing. I mean, Paul, as I said, asked three times for the Lord to remove the thorn in his life. Do you think Paul was not believing is why the thorn wasn't removed? Obviously not. It wasn't because Paul was not trusting and realizing and, and completely knowing that God is able to remove the thorn from his flesh. So he was asking, believing, but he was not asking according to the purposes and will of God in his life. And God ultimately reveals that to him and says essentially to him, I'm not removing the thorn, Paul. I will, I'm leaving that in place lest you exalt yourself beyond measure. Because, Paul, you've been exposed to some revelations that are not common to men. You've been taken up into the third heaven, as it were, and you've seen things that are, that are almost overwhelmingly unexplainable to men. And, Paul, were it not for the thorn and the trial that I'm leaving in your life, you would exalt yourself above measure so that you will not rely upon your strength and upon the strength of Christ. I'm leaving the thorn in place. And as I shared this morning, Paul does a complete turnaround, right? I will rather then rejoice in my weaknesses because in that weakness, Christ is made strong. And that was why he wanted the thorn to remove, be removed in the first place so that he could proclaim Christ more powerfully and more consistently and more broadly, I think. So he had good intentions and he was asking in faith, believing God, and God ultimately revealed that to him. So we must ask, we must ask in the midst of our trials for faith, for wisdom, but we just ask in faith. Notice he says in that passage as well, without doubting. So this kind of faith brings that assurance. There's no doubting there. I am completely convinced that God is able to answer the prayer and grant the wisdom that I'm appealing for. I know that he's a generous God. I know that he will not reproach me. I know that he will grant the thing that I'm appealing for. And so I'm asking without doubting. I have no doubt whatsoever that God will provide wisdom here. In fact, he gives us an analogy. He says, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. Later on, he says he's double-minded, but he's like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I've given this analogy before, but you may have seen this in, in textbooks and physics and different things. But the, the image was a, of a plastic ball in the ocean and the wave would come by and it would pick the ball up and then the wave slides out from under the ball and the ball falls back almost in the same spot. 
It might move forward a little bit, but it slides down the back of the wave and winds up in the same spot. And the higher the wave, it didn't, it didn't move the ball one way or the other. It just stopped the progression of the ball and the waves were tossing. And I love this analogy because when we ask when we ask from faith and yet doubting, we're like the ball. We make no progress. We might ride up the face of the wave and we might slide down the face of the wave, but we're not progressing towards any goal. We're just being tossed up and tossed down because it's a divided mind. It's saying, I believe with all of my heart and out of faith and from faith, I am appealing to God for the wisdom that only God can provide and I am trusting that God could provide this, but maybe not. I mean, that's the, that's the doubting. That's the doubting. I've heard people use, if it's the Lord's will, I think that's a, a wise thing to pray, but they'll use that as a code word for, I'm not sure he's going to provide the thing. Lord willing, Lord willing. Now, I'm not, I'm not discouraging you from ending your prayer. If the Lord wills, James is going to do that later on. If the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. So we absolutely ought to ultimately be trusting and depending upon what the Lord's will in the matter is. But we ought not to be asking and doubting and exercising faith and believing and doubting at the same time because we're like that ball. We're making no progress. In fact, verse 8, he says here that being a double for that man, this man who is part doubt and part believing, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And sometimes I wondered about this. Sometimes the trial may be for the purpose of producing this kind of faithful asking. And it may be that he will not receive this thing from the Lord because, because the Lord is refining the asking and the believing, and so the trial stays in place, and he doesn't receive any relief from the trial itself until the trial accomplishes what God has ordained that it should do in our lives. Let me just say here and kind of insert I've tried to make it my practice. I've not always been successful, but I've tried to make it my practice to be as sensitive as I can be with His grace to what God's doing in my life through difficulties, even if it's just a bad day. You know, Friday, I had a, a lawnmower breakdown and a water pump go out on my truck on the, at the same day. It took me literally all day long to get Miss Haggerty's yard mode for her, all day long. And I'm sitting out there thinking to myself, trying to put everything back together, what is the purpose for this? I mean, was it, was it a bad thing that I wanted to get this ministry mowing done? Uh, is, there, is there a wrong motive here? What, what, why is this happening today in this order and falling out like this? And some people may say, well, some things just happen, Larry. I don't believe that. I don't know. I haven't determined exactly why he ordained that the events should unfold as they did, but I'm absolutely convinced they were for a purpose. In fact, I noticed that I was unusually calm even in the midst of that. And so maybe that was the, the Lord providing me with the calmness of the spirit and the patient spirit to endure a broken down lawnmower, bring it back home, fix that, put it back together, go back, mow, come back home, get in the truck, unhook the lower from the truck, get out underneath my truck soaking wet, now I got a water pump. And, and I never really got frustrated or upset or, or angry or, or just, just upset about it. I, was, I had a, a mysterious sense of calm through that all. It is what it is. We'll fix the truck, we'll fix the mower, we'll get it done whenever we can get it done. 
And so maybe that was the purpose of it. And God bring it in my life to show me that he can provide for a patient and calm spirit, even in the midst of things that would otherwise be frustrating. So the trial is for a purpose. And discerning that purpose is going to require a wisdom that I don't think you and I possess in ourselves. And James's solution is, in that case, then ask of God. When you realize that you're lacking in what's needed for understanding this and finding joy in the midst of it, then appeal to God. And believe when you're appealing that He is not a God who is not generous. Who will, he, is, he is a generous God. Realize that He's not going to reproach you for your asking and realize that He will provide for that wisdom. But when you ask, ask believing that. Believing in the character of God. Believing in the providential hand of God and in the purposes of God. And ask for His wisdom. Believing that He will grant that wisdom. Don't doubt in the midst of that. Why would He withhold that from you? especially if you're honoring and giving him glory. But if you do have that doubt, verse 7, you ought not to expect you will receive anything from the Lord. And then he describes what that essentially is being. It is being a double-minded man. And because of that, that double-mindedness expands out into all your ways. You're double-minded about that. You're double-minded about everything. You become unstable in all of your ways because you're always balancing between doubting and believing. And you're never committed fully to believing or fully to doubting lest you could be converted in all your full doubt. But you're believing and you're doubting and you're believing and you're doubting. And sometimes he answers and your belief is encouraged. But then you go back the next time and you're believing and you're doubting and he doesn't answer. And so now your doubts increase. So you're back and forth. But believing and doubting, believing and doubting and not asking from faith. And the result is you become unstable in all your ways. I included verse 9 through verse 10, but mainly because I saw that it fit this context more. But he goes immediately from that, and I think he's returning to the situation that the trial has produced. So he speaks to him. He says, but the brother, the brother who is praying this, the brother who lacks wisdom, the one who is he's just encouraged to ask of God, and he will give liberally, uh, liberally. he says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory, and this is striking, in his high position. So, so your trials that have conspired together to produce a humble circumstance, whether it be poverty, whether it be oppression, whatever it is, the brother who has been pressed down by his trials into this humble place should re rejoice and exalt in a high position. How dare him call such a humiliated position an exalted position? But it, you are exactly in an exalted place because now through the trials you have been pressed down to abandon self-sufficiency and you are ripe as it were or you are open now to see and behold and to experience the sufficiency of Christ alone. And that tends towards your joy. So if you're in a trial and you've been crushed by the trial and you're at your wit's end and you're as weak as you've ever been, rejoice he says in that exalted position because that is not the that is not the position of humanity generally 
Generally, they employ all their resources, their money, their intellect, all these things, and they navigate life and they eliminate pain and suffering and trials in every area. And by their own strength, they have managed a fairly peaceful and comfortable life. They are not in an exalted place in regards to encountering the sufficiency of Christ because they are, they are living out of their own sufficiency and have found some relative comfort in doing so. That is not an exalted position, but the brother whose circumstances have humbled him, is in an exalted position. And he says he's the glory in that. And then verse 10, on the contrary, there is the rich man, is the glory in his humiliation. And he goes on to talk about this current state of the rich man who is very much self-sufficient. He has all the resources he needs to make his life as comfortable and easy as possible. And he's never, because of that, pressed to the place to where he has to look outside of himself for something to survive in this world. But he gives us an idea of the end of that man. He says, because he's like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower fails and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, he says, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. I understand that to mean that whatever the trials were that brought the humble man down into that place, if he's humbled in that moment, then he ought to exalt in that elevated position. But the rich man who's never known any of that, his humiliation should be his exaltation. In other words, he should exalt and, and rejoice that he's been humiliated because were he allowed to let go on in that self-sufficiency, he would wither away and go the way of the flower, as it were. So Either man can rejoice in his trials because it produces a sense of the sufficiency of Christ in each of their lives. And then finally he closes or ends this passage we're looking at with this statement, which I think he's turning back to the trials that he's mentioned at the beginning. Blessed, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, which is instrumental part of the trial happening in their lives. Once the trial has taken its course and once it has accomplished the purposes of God in his life and manifested him as genuinely and authentically faithful to Christ, as genuinely one of Christ. Blessed is that man who has persevered under that trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So I think that touches again on the ultimate purpose of the trials. We are, we are born again by grace through faith. We belong to Christ. Um, someone pointed out to me this morning, I thought going home, it was kind of the same reaction I think Luther had. But, but, but the way I said things suggested perhaps to someone that, that I was saying that you could believe and then next day not believe and not be saved and get saved and go in and out of salvation uh, like that. That is not at all what James is saying and certainly not what I am saying. What I am saying is that the, the new birth and truly Christian is indicated by a life of obedience. Not that we never disobey or never sin, but if there is no pattern of obedience all through our years, we have no warrant to claim that we are saved. That's why James is intimately, eminently practical because it tells us that it is difficult for you to have faith and then not manifest that faith somehow in obedience and in works. 
In fact, if you're not showing that or demonstrating that by a faithful obedience to Christ, you have no warrant, as, as Brother Blake was sharing with me, to look back on your baptism and say, well, nothing to worry about because I was saved because out there proves it. And that's all he was meaning. And that's all I was saying. Certainly where uh, once saved, the person I was sharing with this be uh, had a good point, but they said, instead of saying once saved, always saved, we ought to be saying if saved, always saved. And that's probably a better way to put that. There's no doubt in my mind of the perseverance of the saints. Having been born again, I will persevere all the way to the end. But there are instruments by which God refines the faith that he has planted in me in the new birth. And they, they will be confirmed often through trials specifically tailored to, to address the the faithlessness in my life and refining my faith. And all, each of those instances is a confirmation that I belong to him. And he takes me like that all the way to the end of my days. And he who perseveres unto the end, I think is what he's referring to here, will receive that crown of life. Now here's what I was thinking this evening. I don't want us to go away tonight rejoicing that we have trials in our lives. I'm not suggesting something like that. But I am hoping that myself and you can go away understanding that trials will come. We live in a fallen world and the instruments at God's disposal to refine the faith that he has planted in us through Jesus Christ, he will bring those to bear in our lives. And the purpose of those trials, and to me the most efficient way to navigate those, is to be sensitive to what he is doing in our lives through the trials. Yield to that, repent of sin if it's in our lives, readjust our thinking according to truth if that's what he's pointing out, adjust wherever we need to adjust so that that trial's purpose will have been fulfilled and maybe he will take that trial away and certainly there will be one to follow it because we have not yet been perfected but each of those experiences is conforming us more and more to the image of Christ I think I can speak for you Christian as well as I can for myself but I don't want I don't want a faith that is buried somewhere under a bunch of stuff I just presumed I want, a, I want a faith that is dominant. I want it to shape my, my suppositions. I want my faith to be rooted in the truth of God's Word and the Spirit of God. I don't, want, I don't want my faith to be presuming a bunch of things that God owes me somehow or another. I don't want, to, I don't want faith mingled with all of that stuff because it's confusing. It's just confusing. I want it to be pure, and it seems in this world that the instrument for God purifying or refining that faith to that place is the trials that we endure. Some severe, some relatively minor in comparison, and some through the truth of God's Word and through the Spirit bringing those things to bear in our life and through the trials exposing to us all self-sufficiency and all self-reliance so that we will abandon that in favor of trusting fully in God. And I think that's one the, where James begins. James is going to say a lot of powerful things throughout this book. But as I shared this morning, this, this counting it all joy under the various trials, to me that is the pinnacle. That is, that is almost unimaginably impossible for me to have that experience. So he starts out at the very top. 
Now he's going to go through here and talk about how faith looks in the living, how practical it is, how it shapes the way we interact with others, how it shapes the way we interact within the fellowship of the church, how faith is at work producing in us certain behaviors that are consistent with that faith. He's, He's eminently practical in that faith should manifest itself in the way you live your life. But this first one to me is the mountaintop. If I can understand with God's wisdom, how it is that He is using these trials in my life. And if I'm valuing what He's accomplishing in my life more than I am temporal comforts, I can indeed begin to be joyful in the midst of those trials. And and other people will look at that and scratch their heads. And they won't understand how in the world, what in the world in your life is there to be rejoicing about. And that'll give me an opportunity to give a testimony because through these things, Christ, God is bringing me to full dependency and trust in Jesus Christ, to rely wholly on the sufficiency of Christ. And in the abandonment of my own strength, the freedom that that provides, I am rejoicing. I am rejoicing. And what a testimony for Christ that will be. Amen. So stand with me tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for a day of worship, the baptisms. And as I was thinking this afternoon about these these young folks, Father, and the others that we've baptized here and just thinking about what lies ahead for them. And in some ways, my heart shudders and and trembles and almost makes me want to weep for the things that they will encounter and the challenges that they will have to their faith. Father, I'm also encouraged that though they may have these challenges, this is available to them as believers. Lord, I pray for them and for all of us that in the midst of trials that we'll do exactly as James says here. Let the trials do their work in us. And Father, let them, let them be used in your gracious hand to expose in us our self-sufficiency. And Father, I pray that with all haste and with all urgency, we would abandon and cast off all dependency in ourselves and in our own strength and that we might lean wholly upon Christ. And Lord, I am convinced that when we do that and when we understand the power of Christ and and your grace at work in our lives and the joy set ahead of us, we will actually be able to experience a joy in the midst of the trials of life. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that your hand be upon each of us as we go out and we go and interact in our different circles this week. Lord, help us to carry a witness for Christ into those environments. Help us to be patient in suffering, patient in persecution. Lord, when there are those who speak against us in any way or look, look aslant at us for our faith, Father, help us to be kind and gracious and continue right on trusting in you. That in itself will be a testimony. But Father, most of all, help us to be found faithful unto the end. Preserve us as we make our way home. Lord, thank you for the hope and the promise that one day our sanctification will have been completed. We will be, have, have been glorified in that moment, Lord, and we will cast off this body of sin. We will cast off this old man fully and finally and forever. And it will all be attributable to the grace of great Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. We thank you for that great mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.